As I came up to uh, the traffic lights at Wellington Hill today, um, the red light stopped me, but behind the red light there was this massive tree. I tell you, I've seen this tree a thousand times before probably because we used to live up there as well. Um, and every year this tree comes out in new leaf. So it did last year and the year before and the year before. And 25 years ago when I lived here, this tree came out in new leaf. But today, when I came up to that tree, I just went, wow. Literally, I looked at this tree and it was just, wow. Because of the sheer beauty of the new growth. Now then, nothing you're going to hear today, unless you're a very new Christian, is new. It was there last Sunday and Sunday before, and it was there 25 years ago when I preached from Peter as well. But the prayer is, God, give it such new leaf that we go, wow. Because Jesus Christ is the living word, and we've talked about his spirit making things come alive. So, this is the word of God. It's the first few verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. In fact, it should have come in before last Sunday's sermon, if we'd have done it sort of in order. But Ian Campbell, being away in Africa, couldn't be here to do it today, so he preached last week. And uh, if you didn't hear it, get onto that website and listen to the podcast, because he spoke with power. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, or whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, first of all, there are a couple of things in this passage which I've always found difficult to understand. I'm delighted, looking through various commentaries and things, that I'm not the only one. <laughs> that 
For generations, people have found these things difficult to understand. So, the first one is this bit where it says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I've always found that very difficult because I think, because I don't believe in sinless perfection, this side of the glory of God, personally. Maybe you do, but apart from Jesus, show it to me, you see. Um, But the explanation, and there are two or three explanations for this, so I'm just sharing with you what seems to me to be the most likely and best explanation of that particular phrase. Peter's point is that when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. Although believers never totally are free from sin in this life, when believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, they show that their purpose in life is not to live for their own pleasures, but according to the will of God and for his glory. And that seems to me to be brilliant. I can't claim to have suffered great things, but I have had times when in, you might think, the vanity of my imagination, but in my imagination, I have been scared that I will do. So that when my colleague in Romania emailed to say that 30 men had surrounded his car and tried to burn the car in it and topple it and just to get him out of their village because three of the local priests objected to him preaching the gospel there. And he emailed and said, please pray. We prayed. But in Hebrews, while we were praying, in Hebrews I came across again the verse which says, remember the former days when you suffered these things and when you stood by those in prison and sometimes when you stood alongside them. And I went back to the church which was in Watch It and said, this here says standing alongside And we are praying and standing alongside in our prayers, but I wonder whether we ought to do it more physically. And the church said, Dave, we want you to go. I was hoping they'd say, don't go, don't be silly. But they said, go. And so just for a weekend, I went. Well, I had to say that I was scared because I'm not a brave person. My fears were misplaced as it turned out, because God worked a wonderful miracle that weekend within the people of that village. But I was scared, and kids had lined up little sort of little mini mountains of stones along the road to throw at us when we went into the village. I have to say, the sense that, and I don't consider myself brave, it's just what you do when the time comes. But I have to say, the fear that was in me, I had no thoughts of sinning then. I just wanted to please God. There were all the normal temptations all around me. But in those moments, having devoted myself to God for this moment to stand along somebody who may suffer, then I have to say, sin, stuff sin. <laughs> this, this, is, this is standing together. And I guess that's something of what is implied within this statement of Peter. Um, Of course, Ian has gone out to Africa and the the dangers that he might face are much more real 
than the ones that I did. So don't forget to remember him in your prayers at the moment. There are some good reasons for listening to this passage carefully to find out exactly what Peter is is trying to draw out of us in practice. It's a reminder which comes all the way through Peter's letters that Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ did it. Now because we know of Christ that that he is in actual fact the Son of God and that it was the choice of love which caused him to become flesh like us and to experience suffering. That there was no need for God to do this. He could have stamped on his universe of people and started again, couldn't he? He could have just squashed us up, said, that was a bad go, I'm going to start again. But he decided to start again by another method. And the method was entering into the suffering, making real to us the suffering which sin caused him, but actually taking it on himself and not charging us with it in the end. That is amazing. Because we're looking at, when we look at Christ, we're actually seeing God, aren't we? We're seeing the attitude, the character, the generosity, the practice, the love of God in action, demonstrated. So what Peter says, we have this reminder again, that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Or is it just in name only, Dave Winfield, Cairns Road? And at the end of this little bitter passage, because there's, there's a break before he goes on. Uh, God, he's telling us to do everything in order that God may be glorified for Jesus, through Jesus Christ by the way we respond to Jesus, that God may be glorified. So that at the end of the week, can we sit down ourselves face to face with God and say, So far as I'm aware, Lord, my life has brought honour to you. That's what it means, isn't it? So Christ died for us. We have that impetus to walk with him, for him. But the fact that the way we live reflects on God. Because we call ourselves Christians, the way we live reflects on God. The way we park our cars on Sunday or during the week, because we're coming into the church and we're reckoned as Christians by our neighbours. The way we park our cars reflects on God. Everything we do, you see what I mean? So that Peter is saying, to God belongs glory. Unto thee, unto thee, O Lord, belongs the glory, says one of the Psalms. Glory belongs to God. He is the author of creation and of salvation. He is, has the ultimate word and authority. Glory belongs to him. And dominion belongs to him. Our lives within that context 
are for him. So, there are these reasons for listening carefully to what Peter has to say. There is one other which he gives when he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Well, of course, he said it 2,000 years ago. It hasn't happened yet, has it? But all the things, so far as we understand, in the purposes of God, um, which bring salvation to men and set the knowledge of that reconciliation with God out into the whole world, this series of events, God's purpose, is completed, isn't it? In the sense that there's nothing more that needs to be done for Jesus to come again, but according to the purpose and will of God. He chooses the day. No one knows the day nor the hour. So the end, whenever God chooses, may be before I get to the amen this morning. We just don't know. But when the end comes, we have to face God. Now, fantastic what Ruth said about her mum. Not so fantastic what she said about middle age. Uh, because middle age apparently is when you're looking after those who are older than you and those who are younger than you. So I'm only looking after those who are younger, me, younger than me and younger still than them. So this is old age. So when you get to a certain time, you begin to think, and when you begin to see people of your age and friends from school and others beginning to die uh, because of their age, not particularly just because of illness, you realise that, wow, things are getting close, Lord. But Peter is pointing out that things aren't just closer for me, or for Dorothy, they may be that close for you too. Simply because the old end of all things is at hand. So Peter wants to stir us up to take seriously what he's saying about the way we should live and how the passion of Christ in us through his spirit should be demonstrated in the world around us. And that, of course, is the world of your home, the world of your neighbours, the world of your clubs, the world of your work, and mine. Within this short passage, there are things not to do and things which he says we really must do. (laughs) Out of love for God. Because God first loved us. Remember, we don't live as Christians in order to gain credit with God. We don't live under a law which says, unless you do this, unless you do that, unless you do the other, unless you do other, and gather points, you cannot have the love of God. We live under a system of grace where Christ has already carried every jot and sin of our lives and carried it in his own flesh and it is by grace we are saved so Peter isn't calling us to live for God in order to gain points for a good place in heaven he's saying out of the sheer gratitude and grace and and 
and the flood of God's Spirit into our life, making us new creations. Demonstrate that new life by faith in the way we live. So the things we don't do. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Of course, we live in a remarkable age of technology now. It's extraordinary what has been accomplished in terms of technology and engineering and scientific insight just in the years that I've been on this, this, this world. I, I see pictures of myself as a child on my, on my tricycle in London with no cars parked in the street. Knowing that I went into no television in the house and the only telephone two blocks away and things like that. The extraordinary things that have happened in my lifetime are mind-blowing. Nokia said several years ago it couldn't see more than two years ahead because change is so rapid and development and so on. So that living in sensuality and passions and lawless idolatry is now possible. You can do that virtually. You don't have to have a crowd of people anymore. You can lock yourself away in a room and go online and you can have virtual indulgence in some of these things. Well, the time is past for that. But Peter here seems to speak in generalities as though everybody engaged in these. And I don't know, I can't think of any community where everybody engages in these things. So maybe also it had something to do with the idolatrous ways of their former religion. I've not read this anywhere. I'm just thinking, okay? Because in some of those religious practices, there would have been temple prostitutes, there would have been Bacchanalian, Bacchus, the god of wine, Bacchanalian parties and orgies and things like that. And he talks about lawless idolatries. So maybe these things were things which people indulged in their Gentile religious practices. And of course, now they're Christians. But that makes me think of the Gentile practices when you go out to work tomorrow. In the company diaries, there may, be, there may be a works outing or a company outing or there will come up the Christmas parties or there will be the um, let's all get together and be, team build together and it may end up in pubs or even in strip clubs because they are the kind of things that have happened. Well, according to Peter, the time suffices for doing those things. And they're now surprised that you no longer join them in those things. Mind you, I have heard of Christians who will go out to the thing and they will go to the pubs, but they won't drink. They'll say, I will make certain you get home. And they will wipe down the puke as their work colleagues overdo it. 
and they may have gone to the strip club but not, not engaged simply so they can get people home and people have been amazed, therefore, by their Christian character and witness. But I wouldn't recommend that unless you can absolutely say these temptations will not get to me. The time that is past sufficed for those things. But now we belong to Jesus Christ. With respect to these other things, they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you as though you were stupid. Get a life, they might say. You and your Christianity. You're just a party pooper. Well, let them insult you, because Peter reminds us that they will give an account to the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. They will also have to give an answer for their attitudes. But you and I, we live for the glory of God. No, instead, the end of all things is at hand, so we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can pray And, of course, in praying is keeping pace with God, being in tune with God, being open to God for his prompting, his word. So Peter says, instead of these other things, and to me this seems to be absolutely the core of this short passage, above all things... Keep loving one another earnestly. And it comes down that you and I, having been ransomed through the incredible love of Christ, are to demonstrate the same love. That is the character, that is the way we live, that is what we're to be known for. This is how we're to operate with each other. And this question of love is a difficult one because could everyone here say that when Christ died for them they were likeable I was not a likeable person generally speaking so it wasn't because he liked me that Christ died for me and I must have been infuriating to God because I was infuriating to good people before I was converted and probably still am. Perhaps some of you would say you still are, Dave. But uh, so it wasn't when Christ loved me it was at times he loved me in spite of the fact that he must have been infuriated by me, by my attitude, or capable, or I was an infuriating person, you see. God is a God of wrath. He hates sin. So the love of God is demonstrated to you and me not according to our merits, but according to the nature of his love. It's a concrete love which does things for people 
who wouldn't do them for him. There was a particularly nasty joke about which ended up people crucifying Christ again. I loved that joke for a time. I told it with raucous and laughter. Nobody else seemed to laugh. But I just thought it was... I crucified Christ in my mind. But he loved me. You see. So, love isn't about lubby-dubby. It's not about feelings, is it? It's about attitude and concern And it's practical in that he died for me. And he died for others who hadn't taken any notice. He's loved them too. So when we're talking about love, we're not talking about some uh, we're not talking Hollywood here. And Peter says here, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly. Above all, the most important thing. Which reminds me of what Paul said. He's got his amazing passage, which we we love from 1 Corinthians 13 and gets read over and over again in, in, um, in weddings, which finishes up the... So there are these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And then at the beginning of what we call the next church, the next chapter, he says, make love your aim. Or this translation says, pursue love. So these two apostles both agree that the most important thing, the thing to aim at, the thing that is above all, is that we love one another. And so where did they get this from? Well, we go back to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus, um, before he got to the end of his days, Jesus was asked in a public place, what is the greatest commandment? And he replied, the greatest commandment is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, all the law and the prophets are caught up, as it were, in these two commandments. The absolutely crucial, crunch, central thing which they want us to learn is that we love one another. Earnestly, from the heart. And then, of course, at the point when Jesus was going to be sacrificed and he knew he was going to be hung on a cross, he actually spoke about that at his hour, as his hour of glory. We read of it in John, John's Gospel. He spoke of it as his hour of glory and then said in his hour of glory when he's about to be sacrificed on a cross, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Now remember what's in his mind at that point, where he's going to go, what the next 
24 hours hold for him in terms of condemnation and pain and agony, not just from physical pain, but from the absenteeism of the Father, if I can put it that way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this is absolutely core to the way we are as people and as we are together, as we are as a local church community. Because he says, love covers a multitude of sins. I do love that. I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful that the multitude of my sins, which I haven't begun to enumerate, that the multitude of my sins are covered by the love of Christ and demonstrated in blood. And we're to love one another like he loved us. No wonder the scriptures say, Jesus says, and, and, and the letters say, don't judge one another. Do you know what gets my goat most as a Christian? And I've done it myself, so I'm guilty. What gets my goat is the expectations that other people place on me. Seriously. Um, I'm not saying those expectations are always wrong. And I need to hear some of them, and I need to humble myself and listen. But I really get fed up with the way people expect me to live up to their expectations of what a minister should be, of what a father should be, of what a husband should be, of what a Dave should be. Because I fail them. I'm not the perfect father, I'm not the perfect this, I'm not the person who can fulfill that person's expectations as though I were Jesus. I'm Dave. Now I do do my best and I want to live for Jesus and I want to honour you and I do want to love you with all my heart. You see what I mean? But then when these judgments and these whisperings come out and it goes on all the time in churches. It's happened for 40 years in every church I've been. These whispers come out and they surface as weeds. When love is supposed to cover a multitude of sins, And I need to remember that. I first discovered that. And I've been a minister for a while. I should have known better. But I first discovered that when I was here previously and one of the ladies in the church had really been messing me about. Could have been a bloke. It was a lady had really been cheesing me off. But I knew in here that I just have to go around and bless the family, go and visit. So I went, and I sat down on their sofa, and she made me a great cup of tea, and the kids tumbled around, and she began to tell me all the ways that God had been answering her prayers. 
And I sat there and I have to admit, I grumbled inwardly to God. I said, inwardly I was saying, God, can't you see what a pain this woman has been to me? And here you are answering her prayers. And I can't deny that you have answered her prayers. That was a big lesson for me. People are not judged by the way I feel. God looks on the heart, and none of us is yet perfected. None of us is yet without sin. And you ask my wife, I'm still on the process of being made more like Jesus. And I had to go home and get on my knees and say, I'm so sorry, Lord, that I put myself in the middle and got fed up with this person when actually you were looking at this person's heart and seeing faith at work and recognizing that things which bothered me were still ignorance in her, that you're the one who's sanctifying her, not me. And you've covered her sins and you've welcomed her, and she may be a long way ahead of me, up that table at your final feast, for all I know. Father, forgive me. I didn't realise what I was doing. And so, we're called to love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. I will let you down sometimes, and you will let me down, but let's be honest with one another. Christ loves you so much, He's already covered it. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Hallelujah. Christ has covered your sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, grumbling comes up quite a lot in the letters, doesn't it? I've done a good bit of it in my life, so I can't can't point any fingers if I knew where to point them. But without grumbling, there's something. Lord, catch us out when we're grumbling and turn us back to trust you and to praise you. Then as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Peter just speaks here, mentions here, Speaking gifts and serving gifts. He doesn't make a distinction between them. They're gifts. And they're evidence of God's varied grace. There's, there's a, both of them can lead to pride. Speaking can be a very vain thing. But whoever speaks is to do it, speak as oracles of God. And I find that scary. So when I sit down, could I look Jesus in the eye and Jesus say, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Or will... I sit down and he'll say, there was an awful lot of you in that, Dave. I would like to, um, Jesus might say, I, I would just like to, um, I'd just like to separate myself off from that bit. 
you see, even if God gives us a word for somebody or an ability to speak or to counsel or to advise or to stand alongside somebody, um, and not speaking is a very good thing quite a lot of the time too. But if God gives us those gifts or opportunities, we have to be very careful how we use them, don't we? Because we're ministers of God's grace and his word has to burst through us. And it's not just the knowledge of his word, it's the spirit of that word, isn't it? Anybody can pump out a doctrine and shout it at somebody. But what is the spirit of that word? Because it's supposed to be a service to the other person and it's supposed to be an act of love to the other person and it's supposed to be something that gives God glory. So we use our varied gifts wisely and with an eye to the Lord and there's no kudos to us through it. And it's the same with serving. Um, wonderful service goes on. Some of it is very simple service. Stuff that you and I take for granted. Thank you for my cup of tea before we started. Thank you for those who will put more tables out later on. They're just simple acts of service. There are many other acts of service, aren't there? But uh, it is possible to do that and say, I'm the only one who does this. In the same way that a, pre a speaker can do that. Oh. But these are acts, they're service, they're acts of love, they're demonstrating God's varied grace and they're intended to bring honour to him at the end of the day. They're acts of love and of compassion comes into it somewhere. So, Peter reminds us that Christ suffered in the flesh. We're to love one another as Christ loved us. We're to live as though the end may be any time because we're going to face Jesus. And we're to live in such a way that um, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ working in us because to him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.